Welcome to the evening edition of Books Sandwiched In, a program series of the Knox County Public Library. This event is a partnership of the Friends, Knox County Public Library, and Union Ave Books. I'm Rusha Sams, president of Friends of Knox County Public Library. Tonight, we welcome author and public historian Elizabeth Catt as she discusses her book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. Ms. Catt works out of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. I will not burst into song, but I'd like to. <laughs> and she contributes to outlets such as On the Media, All Things Considered, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and many more. According to the Knoxville News Sentinel, Ms. Catt describes herself as a public historian and writer. She's co-editor of 55 Strong, Inside the West Virginia Teachers' Strike. And she's director of PASL, a socially conscious historical consulting firm. Ms. Cat's website says that her last name is pronounced Cat in accordance with an ancient curse. <laughs> what you're getting wrong about Appalachia has won critical acclaim and is heralded by many as a rebuttal to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy presenting a version of Appalachia that's perhaps a little more hopeful, a little less grim, and a more progressive view of the region. Lida Phillips, writing for chapter16.org, an online publication of Humanities Tennessee, points out that our region shouldn't be considered a monolithic culture, and certainly not one made up entirely of white people of British heritage. Thank you, Ms. Catt, for writing about the people and the culture of Appalachia, and thank you very much for being with us in Knoxville tonight. Elizabeth Catt. Thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you to Knox County Libraries, Friends of the Library, and Union Avenue Books for helping, me br helping bring me here tonight. Um, an unofficial thank you to Knoxville DSA as well for putting out the word that I was going to be in town. Um, and thank you to my family who is over there in the corner. Um, um, I wanted to mention that there is a nationwide prison strike going on right now. Um, and I won't talk too much about that tonight, but if you're interested in how prisons are an Appalachian issue, um, let me recommend a recent article by Sylvia Ryerson and Judah Shep that was published in the Boston Review called Prison Building in Appalachia. So please check that out if you want to understand why so many of us are concerned with what's going on in the country's prisons. So what I'm going to do tonight is a little bit of commentary around some reading from my book, and then we'll have time for questions as well and conversation. Um, but here is a story to kick off some other stories. This story starts this time around two years ago when um, a university in Beaumont, Texas, hired my partner, Josh, to be a history teacher. So we both arrived. I was kind of the spare parts of that deal. And I was introducing myself um, and who I am and where I was from many, many times a day. Um, I was trying to find a job. I was trying to network in a new city. I was trying to get some momentum going around some projects that I wanted to do. And usually the way this works, in you know, Virginia, where I live now, or, or even in other parts of the state. And I'm not good at small talk, but if I said I was from East Tennessee or Knoxville, we'd go, ah, oh, Dolly Parton. And, or they would go, ah, oh, the UT football team really stinks this year. And I'd go, yeah. Um, 
And, you know, it was it could get exhausting, but it would yield an otherwise pleasant conversation that I was on, you know, square footing with. But there in 2016 in Southeast Texas, I experienced something different. People would ask me, so have you read Hillbilly Elegy yet? I think he nailed it. So you're from, you're from the mountains. What do you think about this book? And <laughs> dozens of people told on themselves with me this way by asking me if I was in fellowship with a book about suburban Ohio because it had the word hillbilly in the title. But soon I understood that this was part of the book's marketing strategy and a big piece of its allure. In addition to being a memoir of a family, which I think it does quite well, it is a memoir of a culture. What is a memoir of a culture? <laughs> I think it's a thing that sounds important until you realize that it's just a term invented by a publishing house to invent a category of books that a rich person could sell about poor people. And the, and the way people talked about the book was really, really unusual. It was like somebody had snitched on me for something that I didn't do, but I still had to explain my way out of it, right? I had to quickly prove my innocence in this moral judgment that somebody was making about the place where I'm from and I've lived most of my life. So I would open my mouth to talk about things like coal mining or issues with land ownership in Appalachia or even the opioid crisis. And it wouldn't be but like two or three minutes before somebody was launching into a story about how their cousin knows somebody who knows somebody who lives in a town in North Carolina where the whole economy is just black market lean cuisines that people buy on food stamps. <laughs> and so by the late fall of that year, and the presidential election was really heating up, um, it really became impossible to escape author J.D. Vance's newfound celebrity. So he embarked on an ambitious speaking tour. I know that the University of Tennessee hosted him, I think, uh, early in the summer in May. Um, he was a political pundit. He made sure to let us know that his own politics made him hesitant to support Donald Trump. But his role in our political moment was to sell the myth that he had the key to understand why other people did. Um, and that key was Appalachia a geographically enormous region with some peculiar and exploitable cultural baggage. It has a primitive or easy to claim ethnic and racial characteristics. We have an opioid crisis. We're experiencing economic decline at a rate unseen on any similar scale in the United States. We basically created the model for resource extraction in the United States. The population is just high enough to wreck a country through malicious voting, or so the narrative goes, but small enough to strategically exile to forgotten America outside of election years. It is the perfect place to imprint this kind of defectiveness onto. Few will catch those aggrandizements. And if they do, if they're inclined to catch them and to speak out, well, let them scream into the void. So before I, I dig any deeper into the topic of hillbilly elegy and how it sells or doesn't sell the country, um, I'm going to read a little bit about how the media was covering Appalachia during the 2016 presidential campaign because media coverage and, and the rise of hillbilly elegy is an explainer text for Appalachia kind of go hand in hand. Of the 2016 presidential election, the New York Times international correspondent Roger Cohen wrote, 
The race is tightening once again because Trump's perceived character, a strong leader with a simple message, never flinching from a fight, cutting through political correctness with bracing bluntness, resonates in places like Appalachia where courage, country, and custness are core values. So I first encountered the Trump country genre in a February 2016 Vanity Fair issue by a reporter called John Sayward. I am in West Virginia to understand Donald Trump, he explained in Welcome to Trump Country USA. Um, Sayward's offering is something of a travel dispatch of accumulated experiences in Morgantown, uh, where WVU is, Clarksburg, and Charleston, the capital. It begins with a tableau of Sayward fondling a gun in a small town strip club and ends with homespun mountain wisdom from a drifter. The structure implies that reality lies somewhere in between the maniacal Trump-supporting strip club denizens and the cosmically indifferent drifter, but it also suggests we should prepare for an age of extremes using Appalachia as a preview of coming attractions. Sayward takes pains to emphasize his difference from the subject of his essays. What sets West Virginians most apart, according to him, is their longing and nostalgia for ordinary things. You have never heard people speak so fondly, so intimately as this man did about a hot dog, he wrote. I feel very strongly about hot dogs, by the way, as an aside, so I really, <laughs> I really took offense to that. Smoky Mountain Market hot dogs forever. Um, <laughs> When a local um, tells him a list of restaurants that he should visit, um, Sayward shares, this will keep happening to me. People talking about the decency of other West Virginians and ordinary seeming food like a dream. Um, so this dream walking though, I think, was meant to offer a sharp contrast to the realities that Sayward describes where everything, things are leaning, teetering. You might consider this metaphorically, but it is literally true. Things are falling down, houses are breaking. To collapse this sense of ruined nostalgia into a single anecdote, Sayward lists half a dozen crumbling enterprises, car washes, bakeries, auto body shops. Quote, a human with a name who had an idea for a thing and then it did it. But in Trump country USA, a car wash closed for the season isn't just a closed car wash, but a harbinger of a future when we all might wish for ordinary things in vain. And more specifically, West Virginia appeared um, in most coverage of 2016 election writing. Um, the media often declared, as Canada's National Post did in the early fall of 2016, that there are few better places to understand how Donald Trump could become US president than McDowell County. CNN called McDowell County residents members of a forgotten tribe, pointing to Trump's share of the primary that yielded the candidate 90% of the Republican vote. But that figure amounted to two just over 700 votes in actual numbers, split between a pool of candidates already narrowed by the timing of the primary. So 700 votes. CNN's segment also featured another minor celebrity of the election cycle, a 93-year-old gas station owner named Ed Shepard, who appeared in a number of articles and essays distilling wisdom about coal country's decline. Shepard became the living personification of this decline, often photographed in his cluttered gas station that appeared only to serve the press. 
His presence in the Trump country pieces was so ubiquitous that when West Virginia Public Radio implored listeners to reach out to Trump voters, it included dusty gas station owners in its roll call. Um, just an aside here, we followed up with Ed Shepard after the election and he didn't vote. He said, nobody, neither one of them give a damn about us. <laughs> <laughs> McDowell County and other coal country counties also became the subject of a glossy New Yorker profile in October 2016 in the heart of Trump country. Um, featured intimate viewers with West Virginia voters alongside bespoke images taken by a Magnum photographer. Magnum is a really um, prestigious photographic agency. Of one Trump voter, they wrote, he's not the Appalachian Trump supporter as many elsewhere imagine him ignorant, racist, appalled by the idea of a female president or black president, suspicious and frightened of immigrants and Muslims with a threatened job or with no job at all, addicted to Oxycontin. <laughs> Just put it all out there. Um, so it was revealing to me that this piece imagined itself both within and outside the Trump country genre. It noted its power to reduce voters to a series of caricatures and stereotypes, but nevertheless used that momentum to tell what it perceived to be a more nuanced story about West Virginia and the 2016 election. Quote, everywhere you go in West Virginia, there are wrecks of houses half destroyed by fire or fallen in with age, was a caption underneath a photograph used in the story. It was a caption of a perfectly intact house <laughs> with only a pair of children's tricycles um, visible in its surroundings. And the piece ended with a scene of an enthusiastic Trump supporter caring for neglected graves in a local cemetery, including the New Yorker made it a point to tell us a slave cemetery. This final blithely implied that many Trump voters might not be the enemies of equality we've imagined them to be, but rather, like most of Appalachia, individuals trapped in limbo, stuck in communities of the barely living and the dead. So I think what we kind of have to answer is why is it so easy to take those liberties? Why is it so easy to parachute into a place like McDowell County, West Virginia, and mine those stories, human interest or otherwise, take those photographs, and present them to audiences who are really only going to react to what they're presented on a very superficial level. And this is also a question that we have to ask when we try to find out um, why hillbilly elegy became so popular and why it's um, been embraced as sort of the definitive text on Appalachia. The big reason that this is is because Appalachia is so easy to other. And to be clear, uh, there are few demographics in this country that don't have their own traditions of being othered by dominant groups. The othering of Native and African American peoples, for example, literally built this country. So this, this is not something that is unique to Appalachia, but it has a particular genealogy in the press which I was very interested in talking more about and presenting more about because I think going back in time, particularly to the 1960s and 70s, helped us explain how we got to a point in 2016 where we have a young, very wealthy 
Ivy League educated person who's acting as a spokesperson of Appalachia. We have intense media interest in Appalachia as a place where images and snapshots and parachute journalism were meant to explain a very complex phenomenon. And one of the stories that I think from the past really captures these tensions is a story about what happened in eastern Kentucky in the 1960s during the war on poverty. Um, it became a common practice for journalists from throughout the United States, Canada, international journalists as well, to come to eastern Kentucky to take images explaining why LBJ was declaring a war on poverty. There was a person who lived in eastern Kentucky. Many of you have heard of him, Harry Caudill. Uh, he wrote Night Comes to the Cumberlands. He was sort of a proto-J.D. Vance in that regard, took press on poverty tours within his home, around his home in Whitesburg. He was a prolific media spokesperson because not only was he of the people, but he was also above them. If you get my drift, um, he was a, an attorney, very middle class. And so he was quite easy to set him apart from the people who worked in the coal mines, for example. So this story is always, um, that I'm about to read, stuck with me as the way that people who live in Appalachia still have the relationship to the media, the layers within that relationship to the media, uh, I'll say. So this is a section called A Camera is a Gun. An hour before his murder, Canadian filmmaker Hugh O'Connor paid a young coal miner in Jeremiah, Kentucky, $10 for the use of its image in an exhibition film designed for the 1968 World's Fair. Covered in coal dust and cradling his child, the miner had, quote, an expression of total despair. O'Connor's film crew remembered it was an extraordinary shot so evocative of the despair of the region. The miner lived in a rented cottage among half a dozen others set in a small clearing of land owned by Hobart Eisen, who offered the cottages for $10 a month. So for the price of a month's rent, the miner traded his image to a man whom his landlord would soon shoot and kill. Eisen, armed with a revolver, discovered O'Connor and his crew of five on his land just minutes after the filmmaker concluded their final shot. Eisen ordered the men off of his property, but they were weighed down by camera equipment. Um, and they couldn't escape before Eisen opened fire. He put one bullet in the camera and another in Hugh O'Connor's chest. According to O'Connor's producer, the filmmaker fell to his knees calling out, why did you have to do that before dying moments later? The film company that hired O'Connor sent funds to Kentucky to help the Commonwealth's attorney prosecute Eisen, but it found that it had little influence in Letcher County. Even though Eisen was known about town as an eccentric figure, he enjoyed enormous community support after his arrest. Streams of people came to visit him in jail before he was released on bail, Calvin Trillin wrote in The New Yorker. Women from around Jeremiah baked him cakes. So there is um, an unsuccessful jury selection because nobody from Letcher County would even entertain the idea of finding Eisen guilty. And then the judge ordered the trial moved to Harlan County. Not exactly <laughs> more, more unbiased. Um, so the first trial resulted in a hung jury. 
And the Commonwealth's attorney was going to retry him, but Eisen pled guilty, struck a deal for manslaughter. He served one year in prison, and then he was released. He died in 1978 at the age of 80. In 1999, Kentucky filmmaker Elizabeth Barrett released a documentary called Stranger with a Camera. It's a documentary that explores the context of the murder. So it answers the film's central question, what brought these two men together face-to-face on that day in 1967? To do this, Barrett examines the impact of poverty pictures. So images of lurid white poverty intended to shock white middle-class audiences out of their stupor. The creators often cited poverty pictures as a necessary catalyst for social change. So see how the other half lived, to quote Michael Harrington. In reality, Baird argued, outsiders often mind the images the way that companies mind the coal. What becomes of people, Barrett's documentary asks, when they become a wellspring for the nation's pity or disgust? One answer lies in Barrett's interview with Mason Eldridge, the coal miner that O'Connor was filming just before his death. Eldridge is sincere and open and friendly, and he knows Barrett but he never lifts his eyes to the camera. One man lowered his eyes and another lifted his gun. Both responses Barrett suggested are reactions to exploitation and shame. The visual archive of Appalachia created in the 1960s focused exclusively on the region's deprivation. In the process of its creation, it provided the raw material for the enhancement of the moral position about the fate of the poor. The belief that poverty is a character flaw hangs over every image of unemployed minor and barefoot child. The American dream has become a nightmare, the BBC announced in a 1967 documentary about Eastern Kentucky. To be Appalachian was to be heir to a distinct kind of wretchedness endlessly performed before an international audience. This created layers of shame in communities like Jeremiah The more well-to-do often came to resent the poor for acting as the enticement for those with greedy cameras. The ties that bind communities together are not always positive, Barrett observed. As the local with a camera, Barrett has a connection to both Eisen and O'Connor that is painful and real. Her interviews with O'Connor's family and his colleagues are the most wretching scenes in the film because they possess a clarity about O'Connor's death that Barrett and her community will never and perhaps should never experience. All are sympathetic to the suffering caused by willful misrepresentation of people and communities. They forgive. But for all the soul-searching performed by Barrett, it is one of O'Connor's Canadian colleagues, a man named Colin Lowe, who delivers the most electrifying lines in the documentary. A camera is like a gun, he explains. It's threatening, it's invasive, it's exploitative. It's not always true. So I thought about Stranger with a Camera often last year, which was 2016, as Barrett experienced what it's like to live among so many people who have snapped and put their pain and resentment in the service of terrible outcomes. Their politics will kill good people. So if a camera is a gun, surely a vote can be too. But I also thought about Barrett's work for another reason. 
Outdated theories about a culture of poverty in Appalachia, honed in the 1960s, had become popular once more, thanks to hillbilly elegy. Much like the visual archive generated during the war on poverty, elegy sells white middle-class audiences an invasive, exploitative story about the region. In the 1960s, for white people, uncomfortable with the images of the civil rights struggles and what they represented, an endless stream of sensationalized white poverty offered them an escape, a window into a more recognizable world of suffering. This intimacy, both now and then, did not equal less contempt, just more value for the viewer and the creator. In some cases, the parallel stretch back further to the exaggerated stories of mountain life created by local color writers during the Hatfield and McCoy era. Appalachian study scholar Jordan Laney recently described the experience of reading Hillbilly Elegy while preparing snippets of this older writing, which we sometimes call local color, for her students. How did journalists and correspondents for the New York Times, as well as scholars, not catch these acts of generalizing on behalf of their elite readers? She asked. How did we trade the breadth of diversity the region has to offer for one view? While reading Hillbilly Elegy, I thought, here is how. This is how people become characters of themselves, ourselves. So let's fold in what J.D. Vance does just a little bit here. Take a look. <laughs> Men who shirk employment and women who lack the appropriate amount of shame for their illegitimate children populate the world of Elegy. Instead of attending church, the people of elegy worship material desires beyond their means and use welfare fraud in the service of their doomed pursuits. This is the reality of our community, Vance writes. It's about a naked druggie destroying what little of value exists in her life. Our homes are a chaotic mess. We scream and yell at each other like we are spectators at a football game. At least one member of our family uses drugs. Sometimes the father, sometimes the mother, sometimes both. And especially stressful times, we'll hit and punch each other all in front of the rest of the family, including young children. His use of the word, we, transforms the personal reality of his difficult childhood into a universal experience. And so the broadest point made on elegy on the basis of this experience is that public policy can help, but there's no government that can fix these problems for us. These problems were not created by governments or corporations or anyone else. We created them, only we can fix them. Um, and as a side here, there's a fantastic book that just came out at the first of the month, um, Beth Macy's Dope Sick, which is about how the opioid crisis came to Appalachia, particularly Southwest Virginia, and the, the role of Purdue Pharma in taking advantage of rural communities that were beset, for example, by a high number of workmen's comp claims. So read that if you want kind of the flip side of this narrative that we created these problems. So the, the argument that corporations did not help create the problems of Appalachia is really stunningly a historical, um, lots of material about that in the book as well. But to my mind as a historian, this is not even the most problematic claim made by Hillbilly Elegy. Um, so the National Review, which is a conservative publication, which also occasionally employed J.D. Vance as a contributor, was really gleeful about the book's uh, release. And in their first review, one of the first nationwide, it explicitly congratulated J.D. Vance for at long last proving that white Appalachians have, quote, 
follow the black underclass and Native Americans not just into family disintegration, addiction, and other pathologies, but also perhaps the most important self-sabotage of all, the crippling delusion that they cannot improve their lot by their own effort. The American Conservative, another uh, publication in that circle, took particular relish in republishing comments from liberal-leaning and non-white individuals in praise of it. Would you believe the columnist excitedly shared that two liberal correspondents who wrote to praise J.D. Vance are black and gay? One of them is an immigrant. And both identified Vance's discussion about moral agency among the poor as critically important. So for many people, the beauty of elegy was not just what it said about the lot of poor white people in Appalachia and in other parts of the country, but what it implied about black Americans as well. Conservatives especially believed that elegy would make intellectual platforming about the moral failures of the poor colorblind in a way that would retroactively vindicate them for deploying the same stereotypes against non-white people for decades. It is fairly obvious that I abhor hillbilly elegy <laughs> and what it represents. Um, but contrary to popular belief, I, I don't spend my time like chasing down fans of the book to explain to them why they're wrong. Um, the main reason is I can't afford to, um, <laughs> because not all of us who write about Appalachia have a Cook Brothers funded war chest. <laughs> but what I am fairly insistent on is that elegy and the simplistic journalism that kind of propped up and paved the way and take advantage of the same um, style of writing, they have a history and a long one, and one that is filled with material consequences for vulnerable people. There's a lot of information about that in the book, and most people want to hear what those consequences are. And one of the most powerful examples I can give is myself, my place in the world, in my body, and I would, I would say in the bodies of many people in this audience, there are metals that come from exposure to environmental contaminants. You become gradually a person that is acceptable to make sick or even kill, depending on the color of your skin sometimes. And most jarring um, for me when I started to think about it was the fact, the brutal fact, that the ideas that I have about myself are less valuable than the ideas that important people and powerful people have about me. Um, so when I, when I write and when I give talks, I'm not out to like, you know, set the world straight about who we really are because who Appalachia is is very multifaceted. Um, it cannot be contained by one person, one story, one narrative. But I really like to interrupt that power, which I think is a very abusive power that says that you should be grateful when somebody writes about the region in a kind way, with nuance, humanely, without stereotyping. One of the most powerful things I think that we can do is connect our experiences to people and communities in other parts of this country and even other parts of the world. When I started living in Texas, for example, I found myself working through a lot of anger that I had for companies like the TVA. 
and Duke Energy for the way that it has inflicted problems with coal ash on East Tennessee. Um, I was living in a very polluted community. In Texas, it was predominantly an African-American community. But I was watching energy companies essentially do the same thing that energy companies here have done to people for generations. And that hit me hard. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what that was like. And this is how I'll conclude by some truths about myself, but also um, how I try to think about the region. So Appalachian people, I think, are a group that seems perpetually burdened with the task of re-earning their place in the narrative of American progress. Uh, in this, we are not alone. Uh, but for us, however, this burden manifests in this, this particular way that we have to depopulate the region. It is kind of like an exodus of sacrifice that must be performed in order to prove that we are not the people that you think we are. To leave is to demonstrate our ambition, to be something other than dependent and stubborn. To leave is to be productive rather than complacent, and to refuse is to be complicit. Theories about brain drain, and this is another thing that J.D. Vance is very popular for, suggest that the only individuals who want to be um, left behind are those who are pathological, um, choosing to forego a chance at prosperity to live among the lost and doomed. So I left, you know, I earned a PhD and promptly moved to wherever the job market decided that I needed to go and that happened to be Southeast Texas. And this move I think was wholly in line with appropriate notions, mobility, for those with a kind of elite education who take uh, a place in a system of privilege that narrows as it elevates. So in other words, I'm a product of two institutions with specific paths of ambition, the mountains and the academy. So the logic of the academy told me that I should take any job that I could, no matter how awful the pay or how gloomy the surroundings, in order to be successful. So the corner of Tennessee that I'm from, which I don't have to explain because here we are, so it isn't known for coal extraction, um, but it is known for transforming coal into energy through the Tennessee Valley Authority, the all-encompassing hand of the TVA. Its power-generating facilities produce a substance called coal ash, and coal ash is a really toxic substance, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here at home, but it defies convenient disposal. Using the TVA's own data, the Southern Environmental Law Center estimates that in the last 60 years, 27 billion gallons of coal ash have leaked from the utility company's Gallatin facility. Steve Hale and Steve Cavendish, who write for a publication called The Nashville Scene, described a 2008 industrial spill not far from uh, where I lived in East Tennessee. So around 1 a.m., the retaining wall of an 80-acre ash pond at the Kingston Fossil Plant 40 miles from Knoxville collapsed sending 50 years worth of waste spilling out into the night. All in all, 1.1 billion gallons of wet ash rushed forth from the plant, a tidal wave of toxic sludge that covered 300 acres, spilled into a nearby river and destroyed at least three homes and swept one off of its foundation. So the TVA responded to purchase 180 acres, sorry, 180 contaminated properties 
and 960 acres of land that was now toxic. Five years after the spill, only a man called Tommy Charles and his wife were left in the neighborhood. He cried when reporters came to ask him why he didn't leave. He was 74 and he didn't have anywhere else to go. If the logic of Exodus was correct, then my relocation would forever entitle me to be spared the sight of people weeping from their homes. It would exempt me from conversations with bank tellers about the worsening symptoms of their children's asthma. My daily commute would be forever free from the monotonous rush to roll up windows at certain mile markers. My water would be drinkable and my air would be clean. I would be paid my worth, allowed to live in productive comfort, among others allowed the same. This is not the reality that I experience. Instead, I followed the market to the polluted air and contaminated water of Texas's cancer belt. This time brought to you not by the coal industry, but the oil industry. So in Texas, the people most likely to suffer the worst effects of refinery pollution are African-American. But the same brutal disregard, I think, is present. The only difference was this time, it was me weeping for my home, both the one I left and the one that I came to. When I traveled to give academic talks or give interviews for other positions, I became convinced that the smell of refineries followed me on my clothes and would reveal my true identity as someone not important enough not to be poisoned. The logic of Exodus just shrugs its shoulders at these realities and tells us to move smarter. I decided to ignore this logic and come back home and fight smarter. The relief at returning is overwhelming to come creeping towards home. Silas House writes, there is a language in the kudzu and it is all ours and belongs to no one else. This is my tongue for you whispering our history. Words, words, words. Thank you very much. Uh, first, I want to thank you for being here. It Thanks. was wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciated what you said about Exodus. Some can't leave. It's not an option for some mm -hmm. people. So I'm thinking about what can you do? So whether you live in Flint, Michigan, or whether you live in this uh, coal ash problem, I'm just thinking about how can we deal with these kind of problems from a public health point of view. Um, locally, there's a great organization called STAY, uh, which stands for Stay Together Appalachia Youth. It is based at the Highlander Center in Newmarket, Tennessee. And what they do is they provide a range of services and fellowship and advocacy for individuals under 30 who are staying in the region. So advocacy, confronting and dealing with racism in our communities, the fallout from the opioid crisis, LGBT rights in Appalachia. It's a safe place for young people to talk about some of the struggles that come along with being young people in a place like Appalachia. So they're the experts on this, and I would recommend um, anybody interested in answering those questions, check out their work. Yeah, stay is awesome. They're yeah. great. Um, you talk about the internal colony model mm -hmm. and how it was really useful in the late 70s. And in research that I've done, it was really helpful for me just thinking about this place. Do you think that that model is still operative? And can, does it have room to contain the people that you 
you talk about saying like a few tree huggers and then the mm -hmm. conservationists at the same time. So, I mean, academia and just people in general, we like to have categories and sure. models for things. And I recognize that that one is like there are problems and holes in it. Mm -hmm. um, so do you have ideas about something that might be better or ways to, to think about that a little differently? So sure. Um, just to bring the audience up to speed, there is an academic-ish theory um, in the 1970s that said Appalachia was best to be understood as an internal colony um, within the United States. It was a time when there was a big decolonial effort amongst the left in particular. A lot of the problems that I have with that, that model that I talk about, I think that, you know, if I tweak it and say, I think Appalachia is the product of the logic of colonialism rather than um, a model of, of colonialism, then a lot of the concerns about excluding or, or flattening indigenous histories, for example, those melt away. So that's what I try to do. And it also, I think, and it's still a question that I think about all the time, but it helps me build some continuity. For example, in Virginia, where I live, we have um, big issues with natural gas pipelines. And one of the most productive ways to fight those is through the courts and to get people who are landowners to sue. Now, that is legally expedient, but perhaps not the way that we should think long-term about land ownership issues in Appalachia because it doesn't center indigenous land rights. For example, when we are thinking about the future, that is the time when we can go and insert a decolonial framework, especially into some of our envisioning. And I think the most productive place to do that is when we think about um, land ownership and restoring um, issues with wealth inequality through an even distribution of land in Appalachia. That makes sense? Okay, cool. Uh, they had a question about uh, why it's uh, so easy for outsiders to see Appalachia as like just a purely white region. Yeah, so... Um if you're interested in learning, and I think this is a particularly important starting point to learn how the history of like maybe like Scotch-Irish ruggedness um, gets introduced so strongly to Appalachian narratives, um, Stephen Stahl's book Ramp Hollow is really great because what he does is he makes a very convincing case that these narratives of, about like white settlers go hand in hand with a desire to mitigate the plunder of Native Americans. So that white America could produce, um, you know, rugged peoples of the land was an important narrative twist, and that kind of sticks around. Um, but then it, you know, it stays for for a lot of reasons. The history of cultural deficiency tracks through Appalachia, um, no matter what ethnic group you're looking at. Um, there's a eugenicist wrote a text called uh, The Wind Tribe, which stood for white Indian Negro, you know, made the case for, for genetic and cultural deficiency. And to say that there was um, something underpinning that, like a proto or primitive white ethnicity, was really helpful in that regard, too. Then it gets picked up by a whole host of unsavory people from sort of like white nationalists to um, people who are, you know, writing their biographies and just being lazy about it. You know, I'm thinking about Jim Webb, for example, who wrote a book called Born Fighting that was like, you know, everything that I am, it's because I'm a Scotch-Irish mountain person. Hooray. So there's lots of layers to that. The, the statistic that I like to use is that um, about 1% of the population claims kind of Scotch-Irish heritage. So automatically there are more people who are African-American and Appalachian and Scotch-Irish. And why that imbalance exists is something that we obviously need to keep thinking about. Thank you so much for your presentation. Thank you. Um, I also did not love Hillbilly Elegy, but it was because J.D. Vance seems like he's a real jerk to his wife. Um, <laughs> but 
Uh, I think one question I had is that, um, I can't remember if he said this in a book, but he said it in many of the interviews about the book, that he felt like Appalachians was sort of like the last acceptable prejudice. And do you sort of take umbrage with that statement, or do you think that his book just amplified that idea as opposed to maybe solving it? So I actually discussed that very statement in my book, and I do take umbrage with it, because I think what J.D. Vance is trying to say when he says a statement like that is that there is no such thing as white privilege in Appalachia, um, which is a very kind of complicated thing to um, deconstruct. But I think that many people who do um, sort of think, you know what, it, why is it socially acceptable to make fun of hillbillies? I think what they're picking up on is the fact that you can be profoundly classists while still also maintaining progressive credentials in other arenas. And that is definitely a thing, and it's um, attached to lots of different arenas from culture to politics. So I would like to not hear people say that so much, or at least qualify it and just say, why, why, you know, why is it okay to be classist and still say that you're progressive? That's my take on that particular statement. Thank you. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I'm a geographer by training, and I always think it's really interesting when we talk about a region, mm -hmm. um, which are, of course, socially constructed, and when you ask five people, you'll get five different answers sure. about what actually, quote unquote, counts as Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And you know, the process of, of defining a region is really a process of setting some kind of boundary and deciding like what is the same, what all of these areas mm -hmm. um, share that makes it this this region. And so I guess I was wondering if you could, you kind of gestured to some of the political um, reasons why it might be expedient to define an Appalachian region and the way that it gets used in the mm -hmm. discourse that way. But I, I guess I'm curious if you think there actually is an Appalachian region that shares certain characteristics and what those characteristics might be. So as a historian, I would say, and this hopefully is a, uh, an outlook that is complementary to geography as well, but that, that the region and people who live in the region that is Appalachia have submitted to similar historical forces. And so rather than something innate in the culture here, I mean, I think what we, what we share um, is that we've been shaped by the same powerful historical actors and historical shifts, which is how, how I kind of define the region. You know, when I, wrote, when I wrote the book, I didn't actually have an explanation of what Appalachia was, you know, like beyond this kind of imaginary place. And my, my publisher said, you have to put that in there. And I'm really, really glad that I did because it's something that people, I, I think, even in this, in this region, don't particularly think about how this thing that's called Appalachia came into being such that we know it. And so much of how we think about the region is a product of that moment that I talked about in the 1960s, the, the creation of the Appalachian Regional Commission, for example, which defined it as 420 counties, 13 states, that kind of thing. But their lens, which has really been really, really enduring, is that poverty is officially a region after that. And a region is poverty. And that is, I think, really profound. It's always good to maintain flexible boundaries and, and talk about them, um, but it's also good to understand that those are also products that we create too and categories that we create. Well, I want to thank you for, your, for being with thank us you. tonight. How's it going for you since you've written this book? And 
how are you received, and how much have you been out in audiences like this? So I've been in lots of audiences like this. You know, I take great joy in speaking to community groups in, in Appalachia, and I try to do that as much as possible wherever people invite me. And I think that there was, after that book and after the presidential election, I think there was like a hunger for people to have some kind of pushback out in the public, whether it came through this book or, you know, people who are, are talking back. There's a, a memoirist named um, Sarah Smarsh, for example, who's from Kansas, but she's recently written like a count, it's not really a counter narrative of, of Hillbilly Elegy, but it's her memoir of a child of a childhood in poverty um, that tracks the fate of her family through, you know, the rise and fall of, of politics, not moral failures. So that'll be important too. I think the most surprising thing to me is I don't get a lot of people challenging me about being mean to J.D. Vance, let us just say. So I'm, I'm enjoying a, a rather nice sweet spot between under the radar, but people that I like are reading the book. So <laughs> it's good. It's good. And I have um, my next book. I just um, signed the contract for, and it's about um, the history of eugenics in Appalachia, which is not a very nice topic, but it was the one thing, if you read the book, you said you've read the book, um, that people like, I would like to know more about this, about um, some of that history. So that's coming up too. <laughs> Thanks. I think there's one more. How do we define, like as historians, um, what Appalachian culture is. So there's the amazing, and I'm sure you're familiar with him, Loyal Jones um, at Berea mm -hmm. College. I've gotten to interview him, and he's an amazing person. And he wrote Appalachian Values, which kind of outlines his experience with the culture. And so how can we, in a nuanced way, define Appalachia without putting ourselves into those boxes? Because I think we're always somebody else's country. You know, we're Trump country, or coal country, or black lung country. All of these different titles get assigned to us. But how can we, as historians from within Appalachia, kind of take ownership of our own culture? Maybe disappointingly, I'm not somebody that believes that we should keep writing about Appalachian culture. Again, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of looking at the similarities between the historical forces that have shaped Appalachia. I'm kind of a fan of the mini Appalachias um, version of, of looking at the region and writing about the region. But I think, however you figure, are you a historian? A little bit. I do National History Day, and so... Oh, awesome. Um, I've worked here a lot. Okay, cool. I think... Telling stories about Appalachia is so important, so however you figure out how to answer that question to your own comfort, it will be, um, you'll make fantastic contributions because history is resistance. And, um, you know, Howard Zinn said history is a weapon, and I think that we need as many weapons as we can going into the future and the transition that will happen when coal um, ceases to become a functional part of the economy. But there, there is such a... A tendency to tell Appalachian history from from the top down, um, and public history, the field that I'm from, you know, is a fan of telling history from the bottom up, and it's kind of like a kind of I think a corny way to look at history sometimes, but I think it's really important to be able to tell stories that talk about how power works in Appalachia, um, that demystifies some of the historical forces and the the big heavy hitters in terms of power that have really shaped the way that this region is going into the next 50 years. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.